1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives, some interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. So we'll talk to you soon. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Our guest today is Jeannie Lin. She's the author of several romance novels set in historical China, including the forthcoming novel, The Jade Temptress. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Um, so tell our listeners a little bit about the Ping Lee mysteries. Well, the... Um the, the idea with these is I,
0: I was doing research um, on just the courtesan culture in the Chong Dynasty, and uh, you know, there was sort of a red light district that was famous right in the, the capital, the capital city, and um, it was, you know, similar to geisha culture, but uh, I would say completely unique from it in the ways that um, you know, the women there were really valued for their uh, literary merit, of all things, um, and also their ability to Kind of host or or keep order <laughs> among among the scholars and among the uh, politicians and bureaucrats that would, um, would hang out there. Um, and along with that, there was just a lot of potential for both intrigue and romance because um, all of the all of the upcoming scholars, you know, before they took their exams, they would hang out with these courtesans, and this was where they would maybe meet and make good connections with you know with higher ups, um, you know, so getting to the right parties. Were, was really important so the, the courtesans were a bit of the gatekeepers to that and there was also a lot of poems um, I like to just kind of look through poems of you know what during that, that period what sort of topics people were kind of romanticizing and there were a lot of poems of these men when they were young and, and students just romanticizing and, and, and writing about these women that they found so talented and fascinating and beautiful and um, so that sort of sparked my imagination um, so coupled with that uh, I also enjoy reading. There's a series of mysteries um, called the Judge Dee Mysteries, mm-hmm. and um, he's he's often called the Sherlock Holmes of uh, of China. So he was actually a um, a real magistrate uh, during the Tang Dynasty. So he's a real person, but a series of uh, fictional mysteries were written about him. And what I really liked about reading those mysteries is it's kind of a fun way to kind of visit that culture and that era because he would he would kind of walk through the city and he would meet kind of the the you know, he'd meet boxers and courtesans and businessmen and he would just kind of uh I guess have a survey of all walks of life while he was trying to solve these mysteries. And so um, I thought, you know, that, that's a great way to kind of get, you know, get uh, people exploring, you know, this this uh, this capital city and, and this uh, courtesan culture by by having a mystery that kind of brought our our hero and heroine, you know, through these different walks of life.
1: So what what's the mystery at the heart of the Jade Temptress? You actually, it sounds like you have a very similar character there—a policeman who gets involved in the the courtesan culture. Yes. Um,
0: so the the Jade Temptress. Um, it's, it's though it's a standalone. It is it is bringing in some characters that we we first saw in the the first book, The Lotus Palace, and um, in that one, um, it, it explores the, the sisters Min Yu, the, the courtesan, her story, and uh, along with the the new constable that came to town, and uh, sort of he, he was the darker, more. Ed- enigmatic figure in the first book, um, uh, kind of an- another thing that I've always wanted to write about his sisters. So, you know, in the first book, um, you have Yu Yi Ying, who, is, who is, is the maidservant, and this is her sister, who is the elite courtesan. And um, in this one, you know, she sort of, uh, she was a suspect in the first book, and so like she still has a bit of a contentious relationship with Constable Wu, um, you know, who is tasked who is with with uh, investigating these these crimes, so uh, coming from from that background, where they're a little bit um, at opposites, uh, but also kind of fighting an unspoken attraction for each other. You know, that's that's where the book starts out. And and um, you know, when she gets caught in a murder or caught once again in, as a as a suspect in a murder, she kind of has the choice. You know, does she, um, you know, does she confide in, in this constable, you know, and, and kind of take him in, or does she? you know, try to hide. And so she kind of takes, being the kind of woman who wants to always take the upper hand, she decides, you know, he's going to come after me anyways, let's, let's confide in him, let's bring him in and maybe get him on my side versus, you know, trying to, to, um, you know, be my enemy or be my opponent. And that's sort of the, the start of their, of their relationship.
1: So, why focus on the romantic adventures of people who might be seen as uh, belonging to lower classes? A lot of historical romances are very much about lords and ladies, but that's not the tack that you take here.
0: Um, I think part of what um, part of what I like uh, about these particular people, um, especially in this culture, the courtesan culture, is that uh, they they can kind of see both ends or, or both uh, sides of the coin because they deal so much with the upper class and nobility. But they also deal with the lower classes and the seedier side. And I think that's also what I wanted to explore is there's, there was a lot of beauty in this time, but there was also a lot of kind of under, you know, the the underbelly of society as well. Um, And I think it's interesting to see those two different, um, those two different sides of the coin. And these people, you know, the, the constable who on one side works with, politicians and magistrates and people who are on the upper echelon but also works for the lower class. He he can see both sides. And as a courtesan um also sees both sides of that, so it gives them that perspective. Um, from a personal perspective, I think that I've, I've always been intrigued by just um, kind of the idea of, of meritocracy during this period in the Tong dynasty. It was a a lot of the writings talk about uh, just kind of the the Poor not not necessarily poor, you know there was still a lot of um, a lot of limitations for the peasant class versus the merchant class and then versus the, the scholar scholarly class but um, there was the potential for upward mobility um the idea that if you were honorable and hard working and talented, you could move up in the world and I think from a personal perspective you know education has just been so important in, in you know in my life and my family. I used to be a, a high school teacher that that idea is just To me, it's very romantic, the idea that um, not only could you find the love of your life, but you can, you know, find yourself a better life through your own, you know, through your own good works.
1: So it sounds like you have a lot of interest in the Tang Dynasty. Why that era particularly? I mean, China has a very long history. There are any number of periods (laughs) that you could have set your novels in.
0: I always tell people that the Tang Dynasty is very similar to the Regency um, uh, for, for you know, people who are lovers of English history, um, the Tang Dynasty is, is a very kind of special place for, for lovers of Chinese history. And uh, it's it's the golden age. Um, there's actually several golden ages, but it's one of the golden ages of, of Chinese history. And it's also kind of covered a lot in, um, in a lot of literature and movies. And it's just a fascinating period because of, uh, for me, because of the really strong women that um that the period were, was known for um you know specifically empress uh you know Empress Wu and her daughter um princess Taiping, were very very large figures um in that era, but not just again not just the empresses and princesses, but there were politicians who were women there were uh courtesans um some of the, uh, the survived, you know mo- the courtesans were most uh known i i think for, uh, many of them came from the Tang dynasty and their in their You know, poetry has survived to this day from that era. Um, So I think those women were my muses, and and they continue to be my muses. And then, because of that, I think there's also a lot of writing that survives from that period, and also writing about and by women that survives from that period. And, And that that's fascinating to me.
1: And speaking of women, you had mentioned always wanting to write about sisters. Why is that? What's the appeal there?
0: I think um, me and my, my sister are very, very close. My my little sister, I call her, although, you know, we're both grown now. She just had her same child. I um, have always been really close and she, uh, you know, she, did a lot of my, read, a lot of the data reading and critiquing for me early on when I first started writing. And so that relationship has just, you know, she, she both taught me a lot, <laughs> you know, as much as I've taught her through the through the the years. Um, and I think that bond has just been so special to me, um, that I always wanted to be able to write. Uh, something, a, a bit of sisters. And, and I think uh, a little bit of our relationship kind of comes out in, in the relationship between the two sisters in, in these books um, how they both kind of in different ways try to protect each other and how they both see each other's weaknesses um, and strengths.
1: Well, it makes perfect sense. I hope she appreciates that you, uh, <laughs> you, you wrote that into your books. So I don't know if she recognizes it, but uh, um, it's there. So, were these full-length novels for the HQN line a big shift from writing shorter books for Harlequin historicals? I um, I think they a little bit of a shift. I felt
0: like I had more freedom to explore um, the world a little bit deeper and also explore some secondary characters a, a little bit deeper. Uh, the Harlequin historical books are, you know, technically they are pretty long books for category. They're they're between seventy-five and eighty um K, okay, you know, anyway, so close to three hundred pages. So I felt like in terms of length it was it was um not too much of a stretch, but I think in terms of just the expectations I was able to add a little bit more breadth to, to the story and also depth to the story.
1: Your covers prominently feature Asian men and women, which is obviously very appropriate for the stories that you're writing, but also quite unusual for the romance world. Did you have to fight to get covers that accurately represent your books
0: um no, no, and I think that's one of uh, been just one of the the real joys of um I was working with Harlequin is is they, they've they done a fabulous job on the covers. And I think from the very first cover um, that they did uh, for my book, Butterfly Swords, to the latest covers, I can really see them starting to kind of embrace <laughs> the look and the feel. Uh, you know, I can see the growth there as well. And, and I've just really enjoyed giving them input on, you know, what, what, you know, what kind of clothing and, and what kind of you know jewelry and, and, and what kind of things are are typical of the period. Um but no, it wasn't a fight at all and, and a lot of people wondered about that. And I I think when the Harlequin decided to publish these books, they really uh committed um themselves that, that this was this was a book about China with Chinese characters and there was no need to hide that fact. In fact, uh, they were gonna celebrate that
1: fact. Did you have any trouble breaking in with these books? I mean, again, obviously they're they're not uh, very run-of-the-mill. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to tell because it seems
0: like, you know, it, it, I think it was a challenge, um, and it continues to be a challenge to just look for and find, you know, where the readers are, um, you know, finding new readers and introducing them to these books. But I think it's a challenge for almost any book in the market. Um, I, I would definitely say you know, in terms of romance, where readers are looking for something familiar, and that's what they're going to go to first, and also where they're looking for read-alikes, you know, um, other authors that write the same thing, and if they like that author, they'll they'll kind of go to kind of a, a similar author that writes a, a similar book, and they, they, you know, want a little bit more variety, but they still know what they like. Uh, that's been a challenge, just kind of being one of the few authors that write historical Chinese romance. Um so, I, I think it's more been, been a challenge of that, of, of finding the readers. Um, in terms of breaking in, uh, I, I think I got lucky, <laughs> you know, a little bit of luck always helps, but I think I got lucky in terms of getting in front of maybe the right person at the right time who, who found it just a, an interesting read and who and wanted to pick it up. But once I got picked up, um, I think I've had a massive amount of, of support from within the industry. Um, from my publisher, as well as you know, from bloggers and from um from bloggers and from you know uh, review journals and things like that so that's that 's really helped as well
1: and uh for valentine's day, since this is going live on our site on February fourteenth what have you learned about love from writing romance? <laughs> I think what i 've learned from writing and I think even more importantly, reading
0: romance is there's really a romance and a love story out there for everyone and um i think that's why when i was was first starting to write a lot of people wondered they said well why romance why don't you make it a fantasy story or why don't you write a market historical similar to lisa c or amy tan and And I said, you know, in my heart, uh, I want to write romance. And for the stories I want to write, I feel romance is is going to be the most accepting of the sort of adventure tales or the sort of intimate details, you know, about the lives of of these women and men. Um, And so that's what I've learned. I think romance as a genre um, and just romance as as just the the breadth of stories they have, they're really accepting. And uh, I think there's something, a place for everyone. (laughs) You just have to find it.
1: We've been talking with Jeannie Lynn, and you'll be able to find her book, The Jade Temptress, in stores on March 3rd. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Hi, I'm Scott Ian, author of I'm the Man, and you are listening to Publishers
2: Weekly Radio.
1: Welcome back, I'm Rose Fox
2: And I'm Mark Rotella And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Direct from the PW offices in New York City
1: Today we've got Shahan Mufti on the line He's the author of The Faithful Scribe A family story that embodies the history of Pakistan Shahan, thank you so much for joining us
3: It's great to be with you guys
1: So this is your first book What made you decide to write this book now?
3: Well, the book has been in the works for a few years now Uh, I guess I came to the book when I was uh, reporting as a journalist, I was a daily news reporter in Pakistan, reporting the conflict in the country. Um, And it was really when I encountered uh, the family history, my own family history, which I had never really seen before that. Uh, And this was history that traced my own roots back uh, more than a thousand years back uh, into the inner circle of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. It was uh, through many generations, uh, and so it was really when I encountered that history while reporting the conflict in Pakistan, that I, I felt compelled to write a story because I knew, uh, I, I immediately realized that I had a story and a unique perspective on, uh, on the country, which is really important to, uh, the countries, which is really important to an American audience and, uh, and so I just felt like I needed to tell this story now.
1: So what, what parallels did you see between your family's history and the history of the country?
3: well it, it was interesting so um... i was reporting obviously this conflict in pakistan which the united states is involved in its war in a neighboring afghanistan and um... we know that how the united states and pakistan are deeply involved in each other's affairs because of this war uh, but there's also this larger um, narrative of the war on terror and uh, this larger con- narrative of the clash of civilizations and all these things sort of began obviously in two thousand one and uh, that's where the book begins as well. That's where I—that's the point of departure in the book—is uh, the, the terrorist attacks of 2011 and uh, 2001, mm-hmm. in which I was in uh, in rural Vermont, at my college campus. Um, so this was, and then I, I moved to Pakistan and started reporting the war as a journalist. Um, and it was really—and um, I found when I found it was during the reporting that I found this family history, and I was amazed this family history. Was uh, actually penned and, and, and written down about 200 years ago now. Oh, yeah, almost two centuries ago. And it was uh, it was amazing to read this family history because uh, this was one of my ancestors who had written this family history. And he was born uh, into a world where the British colonists had just come to that part of the world to colonize South Asia um, and that region of the Indus and the Ganges and the Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to read that history that was written so long ago, in which my ancestor was talking about war, and he was talking about East and West meeting, and the conflict between East and West, and the tensions between Islamic civilization and Western civilization. And these were just themes that I, I had found myself writing about in my daily news reports. And it was really those kinds of parallels that I found that, hey, all this history in some ways has happened before. And these themes have run through centuries now. And so it was that kind of parallels between, and obviously the the constant, you know, the the war that had, you know, at at that time and at this time. So there were these connections and these parallels um, that really drew me to telling this story of Pakistan in this particular way.
2: There's a part of the book, in 1971, you talk about the, it was the eve of your parents' wedding and, and the day mm-hmm. India, uh, say, intervened in uh, Pakistan's civil war. Will you tell that's us correct. about this event? Well, yeah, that's
3: where um, that's one of the, it's in the, the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents uh, got married on this day. They got, had an arranged marriage. They had never seen each other before that day. So this was the first time they'd ever met as well. Not only was it the first day, the first time, well, not only was it the day they got married, it was the uh, day they first met. Um, this was a time in 1971. So Pakistan had appeared on the map as a, as a very strange country that had that was uh, separated into two different wings on either side of, of India. So there was a thousand miles of India between this one country, Pakistan, and the two countries were uh, sworn enemies of other, of each other. So that was, uh, uh, and it was 1971. The two wings of Pakistan broke apart. And uh, India intervened in the civil war, and that's when the aerial warfare began on the day of my parents' wedding. Um, it was a very important time as well for Pakistan because Pakistan then became a more, well, it was obviously Pakistan lost, lost half of its population and a huge, I mean, almost 100,000 prisoners of war. Yeah. Um, but it was also profoundly, it really profoundly uh, impacted, it really affected the country as well because uh, not only was the country cut into half but it was also in some ways it became a more coherent state in that it became one quarter of land between the himalayas and the arabian sea and just a quarter of land that ran through through that along the indus river but there was also it really put pressure on the country because the country really felt pre- the deep pressure to define itself anew and clearly half the country had broken off so it wasn't good enough in some ways the original idea of the nation and so the Pakistani constitution that was written right after that war really put a lot of stress on Islam and Islam as a binding force in the country Mm -hmm. and so this became a really important um, occasion for Pakistan to reinvent itself as an Islamic republic. It had always considered itself an Islamic republic, the world's first Islamic republic. But the constitution that was written in those months and after my parents' wedding, uh, those became really defining for Pakistan if we look at it today, uh, because the country became very self-consciously Islamic in a way, in order it was almost a response to the country baking apart that maybe Islam was a force like that could keep the country together in the future. And it was that pressure that really acted on my family, my immediate family, my parents' lives, and my own life. And that really, from that point onwards, um, it was a lot about that experiment in Islam that really affected me and my family personally.
2: Well, you do say you you trace your family's ancestry to the inner circle of the Prophet Muhammad. I mean, (laughs) was this something that was known through generations, or how were you able to trace it, and what did it or does it mean for your family?
3: Well, this was, I mean, this was a history that had been obviously passed on to me. And this is the kind of history, these are the family tales that get passed on from generation to generation, from mother to daughter to son to, you know, and so it, I'd always heard these stories from my mother telling me that, you know, you're, you're descended from the inner circle of the Islamic prophet and you should be. And you know that was something that my family took pride in. But this was stories that had been told. I mean, these are stories sometimes told alongside, you know, bedtime stories and fairy tales. And so it was obviously it was meant as it was meant as a real story when I when it was spoken of in the family. But at that time, and really even when I'd grown up, it wasn't anything that you really take the scalpel of truth, you know, just, you don't dissect this stuff for mm-hmm. truth always. These are, this is the stuff, you know, these are the stories of family. And so I was never really concerned about figuring out whether I really wear my bloodline uh, Um, But it was when I saw the family history written down that it acquired a new meaning for me, because it wasn't just so much that this family history existed. I became very interested, or where it led, where the history of what it showed to me. Because that stuff, in some ways, I always had always been a part of me. But what I was fascinated by was that somebody actually went to the trouble of writing this stuff. That somebody actually took these family stories and tried to make them real um, through the power, you know, through their through the ink of their pen. And it was that. I mean, I really became fascinated and interested in exploring why and how and who wrote this history. And that is when I began, that's when I began in the book as well, to explore the history in the colonial period, when people like my ancestors felt the need to really draw this relationship tightly uh, tie themselves to an Islamic past, that might or might not have existed, of course. I mean, there's no way, I say in the book that there's no way, I mean, any evidence of this, obviously, is long gone. There's no way for me to, there's no way for me to find out anymore the truth of this. Uh, but that, in a way, is less important. What is important to me, and for all of us, and my readers, I think, to know, is that people did believe in this and do believe in this. And that belief and that faith really shapes their lives. And really, not only individuals' lives, but it really ends up shaping the lives of the course of nations and countries and international politics.
1: And did that sense of the power of writing influence you as a journalist or call to you as a journalist? Is that what, what drew you to really focus on who did the writing and, and how that makes things real?
3: Absolutely. This was, a lot of this was, uh, I mean, as much as obviously these events of seeing, encountering the history and all of this uh, triggered the writing of this book, um, this was in many ways a response to my own work as uh, a journalist. And uh, I'd always, you know, we'd always heard of it being the first draft of history. And uh this part and news and the uh, journalism being the first draft of history, but it's really when I started writing this first draft of history and I became involved in and I experienced what this uh, process of writing is, and this idea of capturing the truth as a writer, especially as a news as a news writer, it becomes i mean there's a very up close and intimate look at this process of writing. And I think it had everything to do with the way I reacted to my own family's history and those questions that came to me about how and why th- this history was written and who wrote it, because in some ways I was reacting to this entire process of the r- historical record as a writer myself. And so a lot of this book, and it's you know, it weaved into this story of, of family and, and international politics and Islam in the West, is also... Um, my exploration of what this process of writing is all about and and uh, this idea of whether the truth can really be captured in writing
1: And now you're teaching journalism at the University of Richmond, what's it like passing mm-hmm. this sort of thinking on to the next generation of journalists?
3: Well, teaching it, is it, a change of pace from uh, war correspondence uh, but it's, uh, it's really I mean I think uh, that I do, read, I do learn a lot more about my own writing. I was finishing this book up, actually, at a time when I was teaching a seminar on the nonfiction literature of war. So we were reading some great know, nonfiction pieces. We read uh, Philip Karevich's uh, work and Michael Hare's, uh, John Hersey's Hiroshima. Uh, so there was, there was some great war journalism that we were reading at this time. And it was in those conversations that I, I think I sorted through a lot of my own thoughts. About this, and this was a time when I was working through some of the early, the beginning parts of the book, towards the end of the writing process. Uh, but it really, I think, speaking of this, uh, hearing this stuff about a lot, and also dealing with a generation that, that my students, for all, I always begin these uh, seminar classes about war with I'm talking to my students about um, September 11th and their memories of them, and it's amazing how I've taught this over three years now, and each year the memories become more and more distant and more and more deeply ingrained in this student and it's pretty amazing to see how how these students of mine this generation that's in college now they've grown up in their entire lives are are molded by this war war that we're America's fighting right now in Afghanistan in many ways and this mm. involvement in Pakistan and uh, it's interesting to hear their thoughts on this and the, the perspective that they bring to this is something that you know I think a lot of us well a lot of us who experienced this as adults are you know um are uh, don't don't appreciate it always so it's very it's very enriching to talk this stuff out There's ideas of war as well with my students
2: and how's the reaction been with your students or maybe teachers or fellow administrators i mean do you feel there's a genuine curiosity or is there there a bit of ignorance about um you, you know what you encountered or what you're talking about post nine eleven um, well, I think
3: when it comes specifically to Pakistan, um, there I think I there has been so much ink on Pakistan in the news media, and there has been so much that Pakistan has been such a huge part of what America has talked about in its foreign relations for the past decade, ever since the Afghanistan war started. But, uh, but I think that it's amazing that despite all the conversation, how weak the understanding of the country is. And that's one of the reasons why, what was also driving me to write this book, is that I'm, ha- I'm Pakistani, and I'm American, and I see, see Pakistan in a way as an insider and an outsider. And I have this, what I consider, I mean, I think I have a, a, spe, a, a somewhat unique, unique perspective on that country. And I felt the frustration, uh, I mean, I sense the frustration that a lot of Americans have when it comes to talking about Pakistan because there, it's always in the news but you don't know what to make of it. You, don't, you can't tell why it behaves in the way it does, why it does the things it does, why does it get involved with the United States in the ways that it does. So I do sense there's a real... Curiosity about that country, and that's what I have tried to address in the book—is really lay out this personal narrative, but that one that captures the national narrative. But as far as these are bigger ideas of of Islam and where Islamic politics is going, uh, I, I think—I mean, this, we, we should open the newspaper today, and these con- these are conversations that are very current and relevant when we talk about the Arab Spring in the Middle East mm-hmm. and Egypt, Tunisia. The conversation about Islam and politics and islamic politics is a very very relevant one that i think a lot of people are interested in and 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 Pakistan is just it's the the best example and most relevant example to talk about because it was the original experiment in islam and democracy and and so it becomes all the more important to understand this country beyond our war in afghanistan and i think it'll you know remain that sort of part of that conversation
2: well, you live in both Richmond, Virginia, and Pakistan. What is it like going back and forth? <laughs> Seamless, sometimes. <laughs> uh, but not always. No, it's. Uh,
3: I. I do. I am very. I say in my book as well is that right at the beginning of the book that when I'm in Pakistan, nobody actually mistakes me for anything other than Pakistani, um, and that's just quite often true in the United States as well. Uh, but I definitely do look the part when I'm there it's uh it's always i go back and forth i'm constantly back and forth either on on um, writing assignments for magazines or just to go visit um um, i still have distant, i still have family in pakistan so it's uh it's always easy to go back uh but it is i mean the country changes a little bit every time the the last the, the last decade of war has really taken its toll on Pakistan in a very real way. And I see that, obviously, in America. As an American, I know this war has taken its toll on on American society. But in Pakistan, it looks very different, and uh, the war has really changed, transformed the country in many amazing ways. And I talk about those in the book, um, the violence that spread, just this, this idea of what's acceptable, just the violence that has, you know, slowly seeped into the national fabric over this decade of war. is amazing. Um, but at the same time, the war has strangely brought such massive amounts of money into the country that you see at the same time these huge development projects that would not have been possible if Pakistan was a, a, such a central node in this international war. So it's it's fascinating going back to Pakistan really and that's why I continue to go back, even though I'm I'm done with the book and it's out, I still am pulled back to it often because um there's a lot of a lot more stories to tell from there.
1: Now you had mentioned the the geography of Pakistan earlier, and also in the book you talk about you know, recurring floods. Uh, how do mm-hmm. these factors affect local politics? And uh, is there is there something like a correlation uh, to what's happening in the U.S. with the debate over how to address climate change? Or is it just an entirely different way of the the physical interacting with the political? Absolutely.
3: So the, uh, I dedicate that you know the end of my book to talking about. Uh, very particularly uh, about land. My entire book obviously explores the human relationship with the land and how that relationship is formed in many you know, emotional and intellectual ways. But in the end of the book, I really come to the land and what the land looks like. Um, Pakistan is held together, if by anything. Uh, is it's held together by the river that runs through the length of Pakistan which is the Indus River the water system that's built around the system is one of the, the most intensely it's one of the most intensely irrigated water systems uh, on the planet. Mm-hmm. And the Pakistan is one of the largest, you know, most productive agricultural countries in the world, which is a fact that's little known, but the agricultural production out of Pakistan, you know, dwarfs many of the other countries its uh, size. Um, so, but this relationship is obviously at the at the end of this, um, all national projects and all projects about uh, whether they are Islamic or non-Islamic or any any kind, they're about acquisition to land. It's about Getting land and then using that land and then for somehow bettering your place in the world. That's really what, what I understand nationalism to be. Um, and in Pakistan's case, the Indus is, is, um, is, the, is the river around which the country's tied, but, but the political forces that have acted on it are really draining it in some ways of life. And uh, Pakistan, if there was one, we talk about, obviously, we tend to focus in on a lot about Pakistan's terrorism problem and security problem and, and its wars. But if there really is a serious threat to Pakistan that it does not look like it's going anywhere anytime soon, that is the environmental uh, threat. And that is the usage of the Indus River as a resource. And the usage is tied in with with issues of politics, with issues of Islamic politics, because a lot of people who are claimed to be Islamic politicians are actually landowners. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pakistan in some ways was formed by, you know, the power of the landowners in that area of the Indus. And so a lot of times when we're talking about Islam, we're actually talking about people who are trying to keep and maintain control over water and land resources. And that, that pressures around that Uh, Dynamic are are really leading Pakistan headfirst into an environmental catastrophe. And this is something that should be of concern to the entire world, because here is one of the largest countries in the world, um, fifth or sixth largest country by population in the world, whose uh, citizens, if they don't, or in, in their political leadership, if they don't confront this issue of, the water in the country soon and the environmental disaster that's in the making, we really could be looking at a catastrophe that could, could affect the entire world.
2: Well, moving on to perhaps a, a lighter subject and and back to the states, uh, you, you've written on South uh, South Asians in in America. You wrote about cricket in Florida, which is my home state. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And uh, today, uh, cricket legend Sachin Tendulkar, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, announced his retirement. How's this played out? This news played out in South Asia and and uh, with South Asians in the U.S. Oh boy, this
3: is yeah, I could go on about. This. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, Satin Tendulkar did not have such a good record against batting record against Pakistan, right. so I'll just point that out. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no, he's, a, he's, a, he's an Indian batsman, he's an Indian player, uh, I mean, a living legend, if there ever is one in sports. He's almost dead. I spent time in India as well, and I write about it in the book, but he is a deity in India. He's a sports star, he's very, you know, he's, he's, he's actually a short guy, he's not, he's not much more than five feet tall, wow. but a supremely talented. Athlete, um, and in some ways, one of the best that has existed. They say in the centuries of recorded history of cricket. So he, this is this is a huge moment. But he's just only retired from one form of the game. I might uh, should point out from the five-day format. <laughs> so he still has the one-day format to keep going in. <laughs> But well, Pakistanis, I would say, Pakistanis are, are probably, if anything, maybe secretly a little relief. <laughs> <right.
2: laughs> well, Shahan, thanks so much for those insights. Thanks so much for coming on our show. Well, no, it was a pleasure, Mark and Chris. Thanks. I'm Mark
1: Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Myra Kalman, author and illustrator of My Favorite Things, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
2: In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.